1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's Americans in Action episode, we've got Three Americans we've scouted, we've got three listener questions to answer, two of which definitely relate to the U.S. men's national team. One, maybe I should have read a little bit more closely. To scout those players, to answer those questions, I'm joined by two lovely fellas. Uh, First up, scavenging the deserts of Arizona for any possible number nines, it's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe.
2: Yeah, so far, uh, no success. I'm finding a lot of cactus, a lot of tumbleweeds, uh, a lot of rattlesnakes, but uh, no number nines. Sorry to
1: report. Rattlestake could work. could be spicy. could be a little bit uh, difficult to handle. You never know, Joe. I, I'd say keep your eye on that one. And while Joe does that, scouring the locks of Scotland for a serviceable <laughs> Tyler Adams deputy is Graham Ruffin. Graham, any Americans out there?
3: Uh, not really. No, no, no luck in terms of finding a Tyler Adams deputy and no luck in terms of finding the Loch Ness Drogba either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the mythical Loch Ness Drogba. Uh, I, I hope you do find that, and if you do, Graham, uh, be sure to report it here on the Total Taco Show. Uh, I, w- I would have no doubt that you would do such a thing.
3: Yeah, first place, obviously, <laughs> as if that's where you would report that. I, it- I, I have solved the the, the centuries-long uh, conundrum, the, the, the centuries-long mystery, and I'm going to report it here first, yeah.
1: Is it is it just... Is it a larger Didier Drogba that is also aquatic based? Is it just sort of like have some of the playing characteristics of Didier Drogba? What is it, Graham, since we've gone down this rabbit hole?
3: I think it's actually Didier Drogba. I mean, when was the last time you saw him? (laughs) He could be, he could be Loch Ness. Just
1: just living in a submarine in Scotland, enjoying his time. All right. All right. Uh, Well, if that, Uh, becomes the case. I'm sure we will talk about it. But for now, as I said, three Americans to be discussed on this episode. We're going to talk about Haji Wright, uh, Faloran Balagan, and Eric Palmer Brown. Joe, I don't know if we should necessarily start with this, but I'm going to anyway. One thing that I think informed my research was trying to see these guys as potential for making the Qatar roster. And I think maybe that put me in a more negative position than you and Graham. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording. So with each of these players, were you evaluating them for the potential of playing in Qatar? Or were you looking more so towards the future?
2: I was mostly looking towards the future, and that's where I think these three players land. Maybe Eric Palmer-Brown gets in, in, in into that Qatar roster. That still feels pretty unlikely to me, but I, I think he's an option there. But Haji Wright and Balogun certainly, I think, is is one for the future. He's not even officially a U.S. Men's National Team player yet, right? He'd have to switch from England in order to do so. So I think it is important to think about, not just with these players, but with a lot of players out there, right? We talked about Alex Mendez last week at the Vizella Boarding School of Hard Knocks. These are players that have a ton of talent, and and they are sort of filling out the bottom end of the U.S. pool, where if you needed someone, of course you could bring in someone like these guys to, to come in and do a job. But realistically, with the depth that the U.S. has built and is still building, it's okay to say, yeah, maybe you're not one for the World Cup in eight months, right? Maybe you're one for the future. And I think that is more than finding that. And for me, as I looked through these players and watched a bunch of tape and looked at some numbers, as I'm looking at these players I get pretty encouraged looking ahead to 2026 or to the big gap between 2022 and 2026. There's going to be opportunities to try stuff. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to try stuff. And I think these are players that could conceivably, involved in, could, could conceivably be involved in that next cycle for the U.S. men's national team.
1: Graham, same page for you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think I was, I was definitely... A bit more positive than than you, Taylor, but as you say, my framing was slightly different in that I'm not looking to the World Cup for these guys. It's it's about what they could do in the future. As we'll come to uh, Balogun in particular, I am excited about him from a USMNT perspective, but that doesn't necessarily mean he should be on the plane to Qatar. It's It's a 2026 kind of player to monitor, I think.
1: All right. All right, I'm good with that. We'll we'll see how the conversation evolves and how these players evolve as we go forward, but for now let's talk Haji Wright to start. The 24-year-old attacker on loan at Antalyaspor from uh, Sunderske is how I'm going to go with it here. I did write down nice the pronunciation and cannot find it uh, in my notes immediately. I'm glad you
3: took that on. S- Me S- There we go.
1: There, it's the O with a line through it. There's a capital E at the end because reasons. I don't know. He's unloaded on Taliespore. That one I can say.
2: I just had on loan from Denmark in my notes. So. <laughs>
1: That's a better way to do it. That I would have a have lot have of respect
2: for what you just did, Taylor. <laughs>
1: Joe, that's the editor's choice right there. Simplify it, and then you don't yeah. look like a fool. And since you've been smart
2: with that, Joe, I'll turn it to you to talk about Haji Wright. Sure. Well, first, Taylor, actually, I want to flip it back to you to tell us a little bit about in- and okay. Antalya, right? That's the, the, oh, the yeah. region of the city in Turkey. You messaged on our Slack earlier today oh, yeah. that Haji Wright picked his club well. Tell us more about that before I dive in.
1: Yeah, man. Because, I mean, in Turkey, you've got the three big clubs. You've got Galatasaray, Besiktas, and Fenerbahce, in that order, uh, in my opinion. Uh, all of them in Istanbul, then you've got Trabzonspor Spore, historically also pretty good. They are like in the northeastern corner of Turkey, right on the Black Sea. And you don't get a ton of other clubs from other areas. That started to change a little bit, Antalya Spor being one of them. And Antalya is the, the beach paradise, the Mediterranean-Caribbean hybrid beach paradise, where you've got a ton of resorts. It's a beautiful place to live, to vacation. And I imagine for a 24-year-old footballer who's probably pretty well compensated, or at least Mostly well compensated. I'm guessing he's enjoying his time there. So credit to uh, Haji Wright because I think I'd rather be there than, say, Middlesbrough. No offense yeah. to Middlesbrough people, but also maybe some offense to Middlesbrough people.
3: Right. It's only natural, Taylor. Did <laughs> anyone also clock who Haji Wright's manager is? Yes. Yep. Tell us, Graham. Nuri Sahin, which wow. makes me feel old. I yeah. can't believe he must be a young manager. I actually don't know what his he's age is. 30, he's thirty-three. Exactly right. So maybe maybe not as bad as it first seemed. But the fact that Nuri Sahin is a manager now, yeah, yeah, that made me feel old. Yeah, he had I remember the initials,
1: he had the initials on his sorry Joe on his like training gear, and I was like, oh, that's nice that they cut to Nuri Sahin on the bench. I didn't know he played <laughs> there. I guess he's like the captain, and then it turns out I think he is still an active player, but he is also the first team manager. Was not ready for that one. Uh, Joe, what were you going to say about Nuri Shaheen?
2: Yeah, there's the second Christian Pulisic and Haji Wright connection. They were in the Bundesliga at the same time, and also Nuri Shaheen played for Dortmund at the same time Pulisic did. Crazy, crazy world out there. This is the kind of stuff that happens, though, as a lot of these players mature. So Haji Wright has had an interesting career path so far. He was uh, with the New York Cosmos and NASL for a while, or for a short while. Then moved over to Schalke's academy and then to the first team, then to Sendhausen in the second Bundesliga, then to Schalke again. That was a loan. And then to VVV Ven- Venio in the Eredivisie, now to Denmark, which Taylor pronounced way better than I will ever. And then now he's in the the Turkish Super League. So he's playing in the top division there. He has 10 goals this season in just under 1,500 minutes, which is a lovely scoring rate. He leads the team in goals and he's scoring at a better rate, guys, than some really big names in Turkey, scoring at a better rate than Mario Balotelli, scoring at a better rate than Mishi Bashuai. he's scoring at a better rate than Kyle Laren. Those are three legit strikers, and Kyle Laren is kind of the guy that's leading the team that topped the Ocho, right, in CONCACAF. So there's some pretty impressive competition that he's beating out in terms of his scoring rate, again, 10 goals in 1,500 minutes. I liked a lot of what I saw from Haji Wright. He's right-footed. He's tall. He's pretty strong physically. In terms of his yeah. player profile, I think that's that's what he looks like physically and the kind of stuff that he does. In terms of where he stays on the field, he likes to stay high. He likes to lead the line. He's not going to drop in. He's not really someone you would want to do a ton of midfield combination play. He likes to play with his back-to-goal. And the other thing he likes to do is run in behind. So imagine a very, very, very dollar-store version, no offense, Hadji Wright, of Erling Holland. right? If you're thinking about a striker profile, Holland loves to turn face forward after he's played with his back-to-goal and get in behind. And Hadji Wright does a lot of that stuff. He's not the quickest in tight spaces, and I think we see that with a lot of like bigger people in general. They just struggle to to really move super fast in any small area. But when he gets going, he has some good straight line speed with those long legs. So he likes to get forward. He likes to run in behind, likes to hang out in the box. I watched all of his goals from this season in Turkey, and all of them are from inside the box. He doesn't take a lot of a lot of shots from distance. He knows what spaces produce really high-value goal-scoring opportunities, and he gets in those spaces. So overall, I, I liked a lot of what I saw from Haji Wright. Again, he's 24 years old. So he's certainly not a young player at this point, but I think he's developed quite well with all of those different stops in his still pretty young career.
1: First of all, Joe, just because he's older than you doesn't mean he's not young. 24 is still young. I'm not hearing
2: this. <laughs> I think there's a lot of folks out there, Taylor, that will will see Haji right and think, oh, yeah, you know, is he still yeah. at Schalke? Like, I remember him in the yeah, Schalke Academy yeah, yeah. with Nick T- T- Tag- uh. Yeah. Not a good day for pronunciations for me. But yes, I do take <laughs> your point.
1: No, I mean, and I think you're right that he is not the the teenager that uh, was at Shalka with the nine other teenagers uh, who were American at Chaka. Uh, he is older. He's in his mid-20s, uh, early mid-20s. And I think Turkey is, in my opinion, a good place for him to be because I saw uh, some of that speed. I saw some of that physicality. But I did see him getting knocked around a bit. And I think sure. that is sort of what you're going to get with mid-table Turkish clubs. You have sort of a lot of money at the top end, like I talked about. He had a little bit more money coming into it, but for the most part, you've got teams that are, I think, going to aim to compete through physicality, through pressing, through intensity of their pressure, and then, you know, through just knocking people around a bit. And I saw Haji Wright take a few hits in this one. Some of them, I felt like he maybe went to ground fairly easily. Uh, other ones, I think he was definitely fouled. But that that was one sort of thing that had me feeling slightly sour on him, Graham, was that it seemed like every time he did one too many things, it was one extra touch, it was one extra dribble, it was one extra step over, and a lot of times that meant he got bodied off the ball or the ball got poked away. I, I, I didn't see a ton of consistent end product, which is a strange thing to say about a player who is leading his team in goals.
3: I, I liked the the physicality that I saw from him, so I would maybe slightly disagree on that. I agree on the maybe taking one touch too many, and I think maybe his technical ability is not as... It could do with some refinement, put it, yeah. put it that way. One thing I do like about him, though, is even when things don't work out and he does take too, uh, one touch too many... Is, and this is a slightly intangible thing that maybe doesn't show up on a stat sheet but when watching the game tape of him I like that there's always an intent to his play whether that is when he's driving with the ball at his feet there's a brilliant goal he scored for in a couple weeks ago where he turns his man at the corner flag drives into the box from the byline and squeezes in the finish at the back post and from the moment he's at the corner flag he's just determined to get a shot away on, on goal as unlikely as that seems or um, w- when he is holding up the play one thing I like about him is he's always thinking Thinking about what next? So some players that, who are asked to hold up the ball, um, they do the physical part of the job, but they don't necessarily recognise that it needs to lead somewhere. And the ball gets caught under their feet, and the moves end there. They get crowded off the ball. But Wright always tries, at least, to take a good first touch with the intention of spraying a pass out to a teammate or spinning and driving in behind with a ball at his feet. So I did I did like that about him, and I liked his intent to always try and get forward and, and, and make something happen. He's not just holding up the ball for the sake of it. He does recognize that it, it needs to lead to something.
1: And I think this is where the distinction in, at the very beginning of the show becomes really important. Because for me, watching him, I was focused on we don't really have a a definitive number nine yet. We're not even sure what the depth chart could be. So maybe he's in that conversation. He's been scoring goals, and I think I was looking at this from a: could he make the team for twenty twenty two? What does he need to develop? And I think ultimately he's a raw talent who's bounced around a bunch and has been with a bunch of different clubs. We've talked about that, but maybe that hasn't let him develop the technical side of things, or some of that, or just polish some of it a little bit more. And so, with that in mind, though he is twenty four. I do look towards 2026 and think if he has consistency, maybe he stays with Antalya Spor for the rest of this season, maybe one more Then maybe he moves in the Turkish league or to another league of like comparable size, maybe a little bit of an improvement. But I think if he continues to polish and refine those abilities, that's where I start to get really excited because to your point, Graham, about that goal, the way he sort of, steps into it so the defender thinks, oh, he's taking it back the way it came, and the defender sort of jumps at that, and then he lets it roll across him. That allows him to then make that turn to get down the uh, the end line to then finish really well. There were moments like that where you could see that there's a ton of intelligence there. He makes smart moves. His spatial awareness, I thought, was also really good. It's just surrounded by a lot of raw talent that I think as it gets refined will become much, much better. So, Joe, with that in mind, I'm thinking... Maybe he's in the conversation for 2026, maybe for, like, a Gold Cup here or a Nations League game there. Maybe not Qatar in 2022, but are you with me that maybe a a, a little bit of uh, refinement to his overall skill set puts him in a better category?
2: Yes, I am. I am with you there, Taylor. I don't—I honestly don't know that Haji Wright— is like a significantly worse option than a lot of the other number nines that the U.S. has tried. For me, it it kind of feels like Haji Wright and Jordan Pifak are on a similar place on a similar level. kind of feels like those players are maybe on a similar level to some of the guys in MLS that we haven't seen get a look yet. Maybe we'll see someone like Brendan Vasquez in June in either the friendlies or in the Nations League. Somewhere in those four games, we might see someone like him. It is difficult because I, I watch Haji Wright, and I'm not I'm not immediately sure that he's a worse option than any of these other players. But for me, the, the reason why I say maybe he's more of a guy for 2026 is it's not like he's jumping off the page infinitely more than any of those other guys. That's the first part of it, and the second part of it is Greg Brouthers hasn't really shown any inclination. We, have, we haven't seen any any clues from Greg Brouthers that Haji Wright is really in consideration. So those are the reasons. Honestly, more than his skills at which Taylor, I agree with you does needs some refinement, but I like a lot of the pieces there, but but it's not really his skill set necessarily for me, it's more just the fact that we haven't seen it, and it feels like Haji Wright is, is too far on the outside of things to really get a meaningful look and, and be in contention for that November group, so that was kind of how I looked at this player from the start, I still am in that spot, I didn't see anything on the film that said oh my goodness gracious, you have to get him in, if you don't, you're, you're really doing the team, the national team a disservice. I don't think that's the case. What I what I do want to see with Haji Wright, though, over the next couple of seasons, Taylor, I take your point about maybe he needs more time to bed in somewhere, right? He's almost never had that outside of Schalke, and even that wasn't really in the first-team environment. It would be great eventually. Maybe that's not this next season. Maybe it's maybe it's the year after. It would be great to see him at a higher level, right? I mean, I know Turkey has some, some good teams there, but I almost view this Haji Wright club situation in the same way that I view CCV at Celtic, right? I think staying at Celtic could do a lot of good for CCV. But at the same time, when it comes to evaluating some of these players, it is difficult for me to fully contextualize what I'm seeing on the field because I personally don't have a great grasp for the competition level. And, and even what I do understand about the, the competition level in Turkey I don't get the impression that it is really near the highest level leagues in Europe. And maybe Haji Wright's not, le- not ready for that. Maybe Turkey's a good spot for him for now. But I think another thing that could help him with the national team and could help him differentiate himself among these other nines is to continue climbing the European ladder, moving from Denmark to Turkey. I know he's on loan there, but making that move and then maybe making another upward move up that, that European league ladder.
1: Uh, Twitter, I await your response to this one, but uh, Joe, I would say with some of the like top-tier teams aside, and even this season, Galatasaray, I think, positioned below Antalya Spore. The Turkish Super League is very similar, in my mind, to Major League Soccer, where you have some teams that do spend a bit more, do have better recruitment or better ability to recruit, but ultimately it's a a, a lengthy season that has a lot of physical teams, and I think it kind of wears you down. I remember watching uh, Turkish games uh, with my wife then girlfriend, and then we'd watch the Premier League games. And, or vice versa, and she would just sort of be of the opinion that I had spoiled her by watching Premier League games and then switching to Turkey. She's like, they're all just hitting each other. It's really physical. It's not very pretty. That's and the so, best bet. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
2: So I Graham, think, your Scotland is showing. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is true. something to be said there for maybe going to develop the technical side if that's what he wants to do. But also... I think there's something to be said for playing in a in a tropical paradise where Greg Berhalter, maybe if he wants to get a vacation and also sure. watch some footy could, could go hang out there. So maybe that's the allure of playing for Antalya Spore. Graham, if Greg Berhalter called you and said, what is Haji Wright best at and what's the thing that I should be ready for him to need to work on? How would you summarize
3: the way you described? Had uh, you write sale pitch there to uh, Greg Ber- <laughs> Berhalter, It's pretty much how I think Qatar won the World Cup bids. Pretty much. Uh, if if there is a if there is a gift bag of Rolex watches as yeah. well, then may- maybe he's in that squad for for Qatar. But I like, that. Um, I like this. Yeah, I, I think his I think his hold up play is, is something that maybe the US doesn't have a, a whole lot of at the moment. Obviously we have we've spotlighted the qualities that Jesus Ferreira brings to, to the squad, but it, it tends to be about creating space that, that that's his best quality rather than kind of holding up up the ball. So um Zardes can kind of do it to a certain extent. I, I think in terms of his hold up play, that was the thing that stood out to me of oh, that that could be quite useful for the US, but Again, to reiterate the point we made already, kind of for the next cycle, not so much for this one.
1: All right. All right. I like it. Well, that's Haji Wright discussed. Why don't we take one quick break and then we'll be back to talk about two more Americans in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear
1: One more to go and then a possible American to go. I realized have to <laughs> back myself into a corner very quickly because we're going to talk about Philorin Balogun, 20-year-old striker on loan at Middlesbrough from Arsenal, triple eligibility, born in New York, so could play for the United States, moved to England at the age of two, could play for England, and both of his parents, I believe, are Nigerian, so could also represent Nigeria, has played for the U.S. at youth level, but for the most part has been playing for England, uh, Graham. With Balogun, we don't know where he will end up. Maybe mm-hmm. an offer to play in the 2022 World Cup turns his head and gets him uh, on a plane to the United States. Watch yeah, out for Julian Green. So, <laughs> there you go. It's happened before. It could happen again. Uh, if he were to do so, first off, do you think with the rest of the season and maybe the start of next season under his belt, could he be in a position or could he strengthen his game enough where he could be in that same conversation as we're having with
3: Haji Wright? It's it's possible, yes. I think uh, Balogun is a player... By the way, uh, Fuller, Fuller and Balogun, that's a difficult first name to, for me Ooh, to yes. say. And I didn't even... So there's many players in this these podcasts that we've done that I maybe don't know that well and I'm, I'm looking at in depth for the first time. Balogun is actually not one of those players. I, I've watched him a number of times for Middlesbrough this season. I always sign him uh, in Football Manager. <laughs> and I until now, wasn't aware that that was his first name. I thought his first name was Florian. So ignorance on my part, uh, they are, it was similar to how for about 10 years, I was sure that Ed- Edison Cavani's name was actually Edison, like Thomas Edison. Uh, so yeah, ignorance it's on not- my part. <laughs> no, it, it's Edin- Edinson, as you as you spell it. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's, oh, that's not okay. I love you guys. <laughs> Graham, you may
1: have looked him up already. If I gave you 100 guesses, do you think you could guess Balogun's
3: middle name? No. I mean, I, I've already looked him up in my research, but it hasn't stuck in my mind, so tell me what it is. Jerry. Oh, right. Jerry. Okay. <laughs> I quite like that. J- Alar- Jerry Baligan is, uh, is a good good name, yeah. I think he runs like a, a
2: repair parts store somewhere <laughs> down the road. Jerry Baligan. <laughs> Jerry. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> that muffler shot and also I want to play in guitar. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'm sure that's how he sounds by the way. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, great. <laughs> I,
3: I have heard that that Berhalter doesn't pick his squad on the basis of the best names, no. so maybe he uh he might need to do something on the pitch. This guy has has a lot of a lot of talent. As I say a player that I'm familiar with already. There's been quite a bit of hype and excitement around him not just from a USMNT perspective but from an Arsenal perspective when a club's of of that stature's fan base is excited about a young player, you know that they've got something. Um, and so I guess it's possible he's on he's on loan at Middlesbrough right now, as you say, Taylor. He maybe hasn't been. As as integral a figure as he he might have liked this season, he's uh, he's played 16 games in the championship, only started eight, but he has got three goals and two assists in those appearances. So he has he has impressed to a certain degree. I think maybe you'd you'd want him to be a first team starter at championship level before you started talking about him as a as a certainly a lock for the, for the roster, the USMNT roster. But um, the most obvious physical attribute that he possesses is, is his speed, and that allows him to get away from defenders, it allows him to get into the box quickly, but it also allows him to make actions quickly, and I'll explain what I mean about that. So one of the things that you, you'll see from Balogun is his propensity for standing up his man, shifting the ball onto his right foot, and then curling a, a shot away into the, into the far corner. And the reason he's so effective at this is because of the swiftness at which he does all those things. So when I say speed as one of his best qualities yes I mean across the ground but also in terms of how he plays the game he's very quick at how how he does things and I always think when you look at some of the best strikers in the world I'm not saying he's at that level but I'm thinking you know Thierry Henry and Kylian Mbappe at the moment and maybe Halland falls into this as well that is some that's a quality that they all have and that is a that's a sign of very good technical fundamentals and I think Balogun does have that and of the three players that we've We've analysed for this uh, pod today. He's the player for me that has the highest ceiling. He could go on and become, unfortunately, for the USMNT. He could become an England international. He could pick England and, and could could uh, feature for that national team. He could go on and become a, a key player for the US. Again, it's probably not for 2022, but certainly for, for 2026. And I, I th- in terms of his fundamentals as a, as a player, I just think he's very sound, which is something that you would expect from someone who has come through the Arsenal youth system, one of the best youth systems in, in the world. And not only has he come through that system, he's thrived in, in their youth teams. And when you look at his qualities, he's a very good all-round striker with very little weaknesses in his game. This sounds like I'm talking him up a lot, and I, I'm, I am, but I'm talking about his fundamentals. The basis of his game is very sound, all of those fundamentals could do with being raised a little bit, or certainly a lot, actually, in in some cases. And if he does that, then there, there's a serious uh, there's a serious player there.
1: how much of that do you attribute to him being in the Arsenal academy in terms of his sort of all around okayness and now needing a bit more polish?
3: Yeah, I think uh, Arsenal obviously have a have a a long history of producing technically sound players you look at the players that have come through that academy recently I mean Bakayo Saka would be a, an obvious one and you look at the techn- technical ability that he has even players that don't make it at Arsenal I'm thinking of uh, Zalalem obviously another another American who's, who's come through that system maybe hasn't lived up to his hype or certainly hasn't lived up to his hype but fundamentally in terms of his technique has always been very sound who was it? There was a Scottish player recently. It was Barry Mackay, who plays for Hearts. I'm, I'm sure you know everything about Barry Mackay. But anyway, he was uh, explaining the best player that he played with at Rangers. And he said Zellem, which was a little bit surprising because he wasn't much of a success at Rangers. But he said in terms of his technical technique, he was streets ahead of anyone that he'd ever played in and with, with in Scotland. And when you look at Balogun, you see a lot of those qualities as well.
1: Joe? I want to pause here for a moment to ask you a very odd question, but it's one that, like, talking about these guys has sort of triggered in me. When we talk about these these different number nine options, it seems like they all have different things that they're very, very good at and different things that they need to work on, which is why we do this show, not breaking any new ground there. But what I keep sort of stumbling upon is the idea that I'm not sure I know what Greg Burhalter would ideally have his number nine be. And so I look at Balagun and he can play on the half turn. He can attack that space like Graham talked about. But I wonder if he does other things as well or if there are those deficiencies in his game. If you were going to say like the three things that maybe Burhalter would be looking for in his ideal first choice number nine, what would those characteristics be?
2: I think the first thing is getting in the box and being goal dangerous, right? I think that's something that he always valued about Jossie Zardes when when they played, when Zardes played under Baraltar with the Columbus crew. Zardes is really good at finding space and making nice runs to attack the ball and put the ball in the back of the net. That is something he's he's sort of, if I'm remembering correctly, criticized Josh Sargent for, in a in a kind way, legitimately, for, for Sargent just not being dangerous enough in and around the box. So I think that's the first thing. It's also nice if you can have someone help press and then really not lead the press because that's not really how the U.S. defends. It's more the wingers, at least in the high press, that step forward and take the opposing center backs and the number nine is responsible for, for shifting and defending the opposition's number six or, or someone in that central midfield group. So pressure is a big part of that. And I also think helping the team in deeper bits of possession is is the final part of that. And I think a lot of these traits, to to be clear, are... Things that every manager values from a number nine. I'm not sure that Greg Braulter is unique in what he's looking for from his number nine. This U.S. team is generally not all that unique in how they play at this point. They were uh, once upon a time in 2019 and maybe even 2020, but that's faded a little bit now. The third thing, yeah, helping helping a team progress the ball forward in possession. And that can look a couple of different ways, Taylor. That can look like Jesus Ferreira dropping in and becoming a number 10 in attack and, and contributing that way. Or it can look like Jordan Pfock being up there and being a body, right, and occasionally doing some combo play, but mostly being there to body opposing center backs and hold play up. That's, I think, more a little bit more what we would see from Haji Wright. We'd also see those runs in behind. Balogun can do some of that. He's a little undersized for a lot of the holdup play. I think Balogun is sort of a hybrid between... The, oh, I'm going to drop in and, and really combine and be an extra midfielder kind of forward, and he's also not – he's, he's a hybrid between that model and between the stay high model, I think, from what I've seen of him so far. So I think those are the the things that Greg Berhalter and, again, pretty much every manager wants from their number nine. Balogun, in, in my view, has a lot of those things. I think he is – dangerous and sees space well in the box. I think he's good in a lot of those moments. I'd like to see more of that from him. Again, we haven't seen a ton of first-team minutes from him in his entire career at this point. So it's early days on that front. He's active. He's energetic. I think he can really be an effective presser in whatever system he's in. And I think he can be technical and, and an asset on the ball, right, and an asset in possession. So I think a lot of those things are good. I agree with Graham. For me, the sample size isn't quite there yet, and I think you want to see more from him. You want to see more production from him in the championship or whatever. Maybe he gets another loan next season to a different club. Maybe it's back to Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. Maybe he stays at Arsenal. I don't know. I think it would be good for him to get first-team minutes somewhere, and that's probably not at Arsenal. The the one thing I have, I guess, on Balogun's game, or maybe here's a, here's a few things that I don't think he's all that good at. He's not a creative passer, which I don't really think is his game. That's not really what he's asked to do for Middlesbrough. And it's not really going to be his game if he becomes a full-time number 9 somewhere. So he's not all that much of a creative passer. He's not going to dribble by you a ton either. He's not like this high-volume, super-technical, YouTube-highlight-skiller kind of guy. That's not really his game either. He can drive by you because he's quick and he's athletic, but he's not really going to dance past you. And the the other thing is, Grammy mentioned him opening up and getting the ball on his right foot and, and taking a shot. I think he's good at that, but he's not nearly as disciplined with his shooting as I'd like him to be. He takes a lot of long shots. I don't know if that's stuff that you guys noticed in the tape, but he he took way too many of those shots for my liking to the point where I almost wondered if it was a, a legitimate instruction from the Middlesbrough coaching staff. I I think there is a time and a place for a long shot, but I, I think he doesn't always see those right times and those right places. So if he can sort of refine his game in the final third, that's always the biggest thing for a striker. I think he could be a really dangerous player. I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to happen before 2022, before the end of this year, I guess I should say.
3: Yeah, I, I had kind of two flaws in his game. One was decision-making, which maybe yeah. falls into what you're saying, Joe. Definitely. In in terms of taking a shot at the wrong moment when there, he is actually in a dangerous position and maybe the pass is the best option or carrying it a little bit further is the best option. So I definitely <laughs> see that. The other one is uh, physicality as well. I mean, he's only 20 years old, but it, it very much feels like he has still to add a little bit of bulk, which will probably come with time and he's playing in the championship which is a very physical league so maybe that is maybe that's going to help him but one thing just to flip it back to a positive one thing that uh, could separate balgin from the rest of the us17 number 9 pool in the future is his ability to create chances for himself i think that's a, 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 that gives him a real advantage and again if you think of some of the best strikers in the world they are they're not just good at finishing chances they're good at creating chances for themselves and I'm not saying Balogun is um, you know a lot of the chances he creates for himself, he then takes makes the wrong decision, as, and it, so it doesn't come to fruition. But who in the who in the US number nine pool at the moment would you say is good at creating chances for themselves? I'm I'm not sure there's anyone. Maybe yeah. Jesus Ferreira, maybe, uh, but he does that in terms of his of his movement, not in terms of like on his on the ball ability. So that is something that Balogun could maybe use as an advantage in the next cycle.
1: I don't love that my answers to that question are are starting fullbacks, but those are the only ones that come to mind. We're like, Anthony Robinson creates some chances, Serginia does create some stuff. I don't think that's what we need when we're talking about number nine possibilities. So yeah, I I think I'm with you both, that I think there are possibilities for Balogun to become an important player for the United States. Maybe that happens sooner, depending on how the rest of this season goes and his offseason progresses. But I think for the most part, we're talking about a player who... Seems like he wants to keep his options open. I, I have the feeling that he leans towards England, and if maybe he did sort of catch fire, he's going to be fielding Gareth Southgate's call first. But you never know, and we, and we shall have to see how it plays out. But I think there's a lot of, similar to Haji Wright, there's a lot of raw possibility there, and I saw some of that, the intent to attack, the intent to go at people to play on a half turn and be comfortable in the box. He makes some wrong decisions, as both of you have mentioned. He lacks that kind of elite technical side of the game that he needs to develop. But I still like a player who wants the ball in the box and wants to create and wants to shoot. And I think that makes me excited to see what comes next for Balogun. Anything else on him before we talk about our final player?
2: Just that note, Taylor, about the switch. I don't think we're going to see a switch barring some wild World Cup shenanigans. I don't think we're going to see any switch to the U.S. until after next summer. So summer of 2023 at the earliest Because that's when the U21 Euros are taking place. And that's like a a real tournament for a lot of these European players. You'll see a lot of stars at big clubs in that tournament. And Balogun has a chance to play for England in that tournament. He's already been a part of qualifying for them. So I don't think, again, unless something crazy happens, I don't think he would miss that opportunity to make a switch now.
1: And it also sounds like all three of us are in agreement that that that's not really a thing U.S. fans should be hoping for. Obviously you can hope that a player chooses to play for the United States and we always want more depth and more talent, but... I don't think this is one of those where if they don't get him, they're missing out on an obvious starter right away. It's not a Serginho Dest sort of situation. It's not a Yunus right. Musa situation for me. There's a lot of potential there, but I it's don't not an think... Just on Aidan just adding the Scottish... Uh, <laughs> exactly, Graham. There. Thank exactly. you, Graham. Thank you, Graham. Uh, Graham, let's move away from the Scottish perspective. Let's keep you focused on Americans by talking about Eric Palmer Brown, the 24-year-old center back for not Troyes, but for Troyes. I have now learned from my Troyes. French pronunciation. <laughs> uh, his loan there was made permanent in February... So he is playing in France. Graham, how's he doing?
3: He's he's doing relatively well at the moment. He's a, a first-team player for Troyes in <laughs> Legun, And And uh, they are, uh, uh, I think, they are guiding themselves away from trouble at the, at the bottom of the, t- of the table. And Palmer Brown has actually been in relatively good form recently and um, it's, it's good to see him get first-team minutes because obviously he was in that situation. He was a bit of a Jack Harrison signing for Manchester City. He leaves SKC early in his career... He is a Harrison signing in the sense that he was never he wasn't signed to be a first team figure for City, and so he's loaned out to Holland and Austria, and then he's initially loaned out to Twain in France, and then he's signed permanently in in February. So it's good for him that he's got some some certainty now in his career. Um, obviously, a player who has been in the in the USMNT roster. So of these three, despite the fact that. He's he's maybe maybe this is just because he's a, a defender and the other two players we've talked about are attackers and everyone likes attackers over defenders but um, he's he's maybe not as remarkable in terms of. Uh, his his talent and talking it's he's not as interesting a player basically it's what i'm trying to say as the other two we've talking about talked about but he's probably the closest to actually making the the guitar roster and i think he certainly has the the physical attributes to be a top level defender he's playing in in the middle of a back three for twa this season and um he's a bit of a bedrock for them in that team he has got a bit of pace that allows him to to hang with uh, the pacey opposition forwards he's good at timing challenges he's in the 98th percentile for dribblers tackled this season in in League 1. His first touch is relatively good. He can pass out from the back, which makes him uh, good for possession-based teams, which I guess is is good for the USM team, maybe why he's been in that roster. Um, His his tackling and interception statistics are good. He's in the 80th percentile for centre-backs in uh, not just League 1, in the top five leagues in terms of his tackling and and interception um, numbers. And there's this story that while Palmer Brown was uh, training at, at City, he would regularly meet with the loan coach there to analyse his body positioning, which City had identified as something he needed to improve on. And so I was closely looking at, when I read that story, I went back to the game tape, looked at a lot of his positioning, and I looked at a couple of matches, recent matches against Marseille and against Strasbourg there at the weekend. And he looks to be fairly strong in that regard in terms of positioning. He doesn't get beaten very often um, by uh, by speed, certainly. He's, as I say, he's got a bit of speed himself. And um, he he in those games he, he didn't seem to get caught out of position very often. So there was there was a lot that I I liked from him. He doesn't really do much to progress the ball at his at his feet. He's in the eleventh uh, percentile for carries. Although this could be down to the the role he plays for Twa, where he's got two, kind of two flyers on either side of him of that back three to carry the ball forward. Um, so maybe it's just he's not being asked to do that. But that was perhaps a deficiency in his game that I spotted.
1: Did you say he met with the lone coach?
3: Yeah, I can tell that you don't play football manager very often. (laughs) I do not. Yeah, so apparently, loan coach is now, uh, is now a role. You have to hire a loan, a loan coach and football manager if you're at a Premier League club. I think their role is essentially just to monitor and coach all the players that you have out on loan. So it's maybe not a, some someone that like Sterling Albion would have, because uh, I don't know if we've got any players out on loan, but at City or a Chelsea or Man United or something like that, you've got a lot of players on your books who are not necessarily in your squad, and I guess that's their job. I know you weren't really
1: signing up to be the expert on the loan coach, but I have, I have another question. So is the idea then that if he's, uh, obviously he has now gone to Thwa on a permanent deal, but when there's, say, a loan player, is he checking in with the loan coach to kind of figure out what he's doing at, at his loan club and how that relates to what maybe the senior team w- would want if he were to return? Yeah. Like Okay, so it's basically making sure he develops in the way that helps the senior team, his, his parent team, as opposed to necessarily just focusing on the loan move.
3: I think so, yeah. My understanding of it is that the loan coach is a liaison for these players who are out on on loan, so that loan coach will analyse their games they're playing on loan. And I think, obviously, it must be a case-by-case basis. They must be telling them things that will help them at the loan club they're, they're at. But I think certainly in City's case, where they have such a, so, a strong sense of identity and what the players that they, they are, that are on their books need to be good at to play for Manchester City, I'd imagine that City, the way that they play, is informing a lot that they were telling Palmer Brown in this case. Well, this has been Lone Coach Chat
1: uh, with myself and Graham. <laughs> Joe, let's go back to Eric Palmer Brown. Uh, let's talk some more strengths and weaknesses.
2: Honestly, Taylor, I don't really have anything else to say as far as the strengths go and, and really the weaknesses, too. I think Graham did a great job. For me, me For me, EPB is very much in the Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman mold, right? He is an athletic guy. He can sweep up in behind the back line. I think that's why you see him playing in the middle of that back line. He's also done a bit of, of left center back and right center back, I believe, this season. But he sweeps up play. He's athletic. He's decent in 1v1 defending. He, he can struggle to turn and, and shift to defend opponents in smaller spaces. Like I talked about just the reverse, I guess, with Haji Wright earlier on in the show. But that's not uncommon for, for a lot of center backs. The only thing I wanted to mention is I don't think he's the best passer under pressure. We don't get to see a lot of that with Twa just because that's not how they play. Like they, They're more defensively and they're a little more direct so that's something that we we maybe don't have the best idea of. But from what I watched, he looks fine, but not supremely comfortable in that role. So for me, he's another guy in contention to make the squad, right? If John Brooks isn't going to be there, EPB's stock goes up a little bit. Same with CCV. Just a lot of abbreviations for me. I think if we're going to get a <laughs> center back that hasn't been involved all that much under under Greg Berhalter in June, and I do think that's possible, I would rather see Cameron Carter Vickers in there than Eric Palmer Brown. I don't know which way that'll go. I don't know if we'll see either of them, but I think as far as his skill set go, skill set goes, it's pretty clear that he's an athletic, pretty mobile center back. That's why we see him come on and play right wing back against Mexico at the Azteca because there's no one else to do that job, and the EPB is athletic enough to hang. So I, I think Graham nailed the the scouting report.
1: I agree. Oh, thanks, and I th- thanks, Joe. And I yeah, think, uh, there will be no bonding between you two. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Joe, I th- I think I think I, I am I'm very much with you, and I'm really glad that you brought up that CCV. Uh, Name Because for me, uh, Eric Palmer Brown reminds me a lot of Cameron Carter-Vickers when we talked about him maybe a year ago, that I see the defensive side. It's very good. He wins stuff in the air. He tracks uh, his his mark well. He makes good plays. He saves stuff on the line. There's one even going back to his days in Austria, where because it was during uh, the pandemic, there's no fans there. So you can hear his coach screaming at him. Uh, no foul, no foul, and then he sort of steps between the man and the ball, lets the ball roll out of bounds, and then you can hear, good no foul, good no foul, and it's just like I enjoyed hearing the praise for the, the defense, but I didn't really have anything when it came to his passing. Graham, I'm glad you included a few things there, but I didn't see a ton of his ability to uh, be calm on the ball, to keep the ball moving, to find open open teammates to advance the ball, so I think that's one I would really like to see. More of from him, not even necessarily improve, but just maybe more footage, more game tape to understand how good he is on the ball, how calm he can be, because uh, you get a little bit better there, and I think it goes a long way towards being uh, more so in in Greg Berhalter's good graces. We'll find out if that's the case if Cameron Carter-Vickers gets called up. But for now, Joe, I think I'm with you that he is in that center back conversation, but we just don't quite know where. But not not threatening for a starting spot or anything like that. Seems like he will be a, a depth option for the time being.
2: Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Maybe crazy things
3: happen between now and November, but I would be surprised. EPB is fun to see. It is. It sounds like, uh, I don't know, like a mild skin irritation or a fuel. Sounds like a fuel. Oh, yeah, this baby takes EPV. Nope, shoot, messed it up. Canceled.
2: <laughs> Forget it. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, if, if your EPB lasts longer than four hours, consult a, a medical <laughs> professional. Yeah, I, I'm, with you. I'm with you on that, Graham. On that note, uh, let's take one more break, and then let's come back to answer a few questions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
3: This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX.
0: Stream on Hulu.
1: Welcome back. It's time to answer some questions. Graham, I'm coming to you for this one from Andrew Moore. With the USA's injuries throughout World Cup qualifying and now McKinney's, Whose stock has risen directly due to another player not being available? Are there other Tom Brady types of players in world soccer who got their chance due to injury and went on to be great? Let's take the second part first, because I think the original question is a little bit more difficult because I'm not sure there's as many obvious answers. Maybe I will be totally wrong. But in terms of world soccer, Graham, other players who you think got their chance due to injury went on to be great.
3: Well, the most obvious one for me, and I'm guessing maybe for you as well, Taylor, yeah. is is Marcus Rashford, mm-hmm. um, who got his first start as a Manchester United player in a Europa League game against, I believe it was against FC Micheland, was yep. it? And what happened was Anthony Martial was was uh, due to start up front. He pulls up in the warm up with a with a with an injury, or actually is it in the is it in the warm up or is it the day before? It was, yeah. was warm up because he was sent down. The
1: like I think Rashford hadn't either hadn't dressed or was in his warm-up gear and didn't have the proper stuff and had to sprint into the locker room to change to come yeah. back out and warm up. So, yeah. Yeah, I seem
3: to part. remember that as, as well. So, Marshall pulls up with an, in, an injury... Rashford starts that game and scores twice in in that game. And then the next match is a Premier League match. Martial is still injured. Um, That Premier League match is against Arsenal. And Rashford scores in that game as well. Obviously, Marcus Rashford is in a little bit of a lull this season, but he's still a very very talented player and an important player for Manchester United. So I guess you say the the rest is history. The, The weird thing about Marcus Rashford is that there wasn't a great deal, or I wasn't aware of a great deal of hype around him. I wasn't, I'd never heard of him before he was named in that squad. So you do wonder, is it one of those situations in soccer where if he doesn't get that opportunity, does he does he ever flourish into the player that he is now? And it, it does raise that point in your mind of, well, do, how how many players have we missed out on by not giving them an opportunity and them not getting that break? And, and yes, it's quite a, an interesting one to think about.
1: It is sliding doors and, and uh, butterfly effect and all that good stuff. Uh, Graham, any other players from world soccer jump out to you for this one?
3: I couldn't think of any others from world soccer. Marcus (laughs) Rashford was the, was the only one. I mean, I guess um, I was trying to think of players that have lost out because of injury and I could think of loads of those players. So Alex Oxley chamberlain was one for me who was a, a key player in the first phase of Klopp's Liverpool reign and he was brilliant. And do you remember that Liverpool City game in the Champions League where that was sort of like Liverpool's coming out party where all of a sudden they were here and they were an elite level team and they could win Champions League titles and so on. And Oxley chamberlain scored in that game and was brilliant. He then suffers an injury, is out for 18 months and has never really become that player again but the difficult thing for Liverpool is I don't I can't quite pinpoint a single player that benefited from that because it was kind of a collective of players that then became Liverpool's midfield so it's quite a difficult one Rashford was just the the one that sprung to mind and I couldn't really think of another case Graham I think that's that's the
2: key you mentioned you know someone goes down injured it's generally in soccer a group of players that help to replace them in this Tom Brady example it was Drew Bledsoe that was the quarterback for the Patriots way back when and he gets injured and Tom Brady then becomes the quarterback for the New England Patriots. It's not like quarterback by committee in, in the same way that you have to juggle minutes and, and rotate squads in soccer because you're playing in multiple competitions. It's not the same in different sports. So I think that's why, Andrew, to address your question, I think that's why maybe there aren't a ton of really obvious choices here because generally it's it's more of a platoon choice. And we see players sort of start to emerge, but then whoever was injured is going to be back. And then maybe they're fighting for minutes, but it's not the same cut and dry very much black and white you're out you're in kind of situation that it might be in other sports
1: yeah and i think there's also the 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 timeline to this as well especially when it comes to international soccer that with the nfl with the brady Uh, analogy that's quarterback goes out you got to start a quarterback for the rest of that game but then also you've got a game next week you got to be ready for the U.S. if you have a key player go out like Weston McKinney maybe you're going to have to find somebody to deputize for a couple games but then you're going to have a few months and things will change and players will develop or not develop and then you'll have a different look at a different number of players I think where there's maybe a little bit of overlap would be when you do have a major tournament or uh, a sort of uh, like a World Cup yeah. or a Euro or a Gold Cup, because then you have a ton of games in quick succession. And that leads me to... The only other one that jumped out to me was when Chris Armas got hurt for the U.S. and he was supposed to start in the center of midfield. Uh, I think in 2002, in comes Pablo Mastorini. And he does just fine. He's a key reason why the U.S. looks so solid. And I think that is sort of the the launching point in my mind for Pablo Mastorini. So that that is definitely one that I think could be on that list. But with McKenney, for example... I think Luca De La Torre, maybe you could make that argument, but it's not like he came in, was lights out, and now Weston McKinney might not be starting when he's fully fit. I think Weston McKinney should be comfortable in his belief that he will get that starting spot back, uh, and I think that's the case for most of the other injuries the U.S. has had to deal with throughout qualifying.
3: One that's just popped into my mind, not not a and tier, but um, when you're talking about major tournaments there and Chris Armas there, Taylor, is uh, Jeff Hurst. I guess we should probably mention him because Jimmy Greaves was the the superstar English striker heading into the 1966 World Cup. He gets injured midway through the tournament and Hurst comes into that team and obviously scores a hat trick in the final and I will never forgive him for it. (laughs) Uh, Well, Graham uh,
1: mourns and is angry at the same time. I would say I do want to try to answer Andrew's question and so the closest one I can think of when it comes to uh, this World Cup qualifying cycle would maybe be Timothy Wea because if Gio Reyna is fully fit for all of qualifying I have to believe he is starting most games yes and I think we don't have the kind of development in the relationship uh, but also in, in development in what he's bringing to the actual game that we did have with Tim Wea, so maybe he's one who misses out and has sort of staked his claim a bit more than he would have been able to otherwise. Uh, but I'm going to consider that one mostly answered or as answered as it could be. Uh, Joe, let's see how we do with the next one from Kenneth Sidon. Does either Bobby Wood or Josie Altador have anything left in their legs to force themselves into the national team equation? We are hurting for number nines is what seems to be the case from this episode.
2: Yeah, I just got major flashbacks to five, <laughs> six years ago. I, I think the answer to this question is no. I'll start with Bobby Wood and then get into Josie. Bobby Wood is is kind of just an average MLS striker at this point for a pretty average MLS team in RSL, maybe slightly below average. I know they started well this season. Based on his 1,000-ish minutes in MLS, statistically he is pretty darn average at just about everything compared to other strikers. He has four goals for RSL in that 1,000 minutes. He's 29, and at this point I, I think there's not a lot in Bobby Wood's favor for a reason why he would get selected. I don't see him bringing more to the table. Than someone like Brandon Vasquez, than someone like even a, a Haji Wright. I think the only thing that Bobby Wood has in his in his favor is experience and an understanding of some of the rigors of international soccer. But he's never been to a World Cup, right? So maybe that would have helped in qualifying. I'm certainly not convinced that it would have. But if we're if we're grasping at straws here, maybe that would be something that that works in his favor. But I, I don't see it happening with Bobby Wood. And for Josie Altidore, he uh, he's not really fit for much soccer at the moment to my eye. I mean he's had one one game where he's gone uh, the full 90 for New England this season, but he's not a, and he's not a starter. He wasn't brought in to be a starter. Maybe that will happen as the season progresses and he can get into into shape a little bit, maybe if if Adam Buxa is sold or if Gustavo bow is unable to go for any reason whatever that looks like. But he is one of the slowest players in MLS. He's in the 10th percentile for top speed this year uh, according to the Second Spectrum. He he just doesn't move a whole lot. And I and I mentioned earlier, Taylor, when you asked me about the nine position for Greg Buralther, I think a really important skill is pressing ability. And Josie Altador cannot do that stuff at this point. I'm not sure that he'll ever be able to do that stuff. The argument for Josie is he is maybe the most technical number nine the US has, and he's certainly maybe the most experienced that would be in the general pool potential for the World Cup. But I, I just don't think he even differentiates himself quite enough with, with his technical ability to make it worth using a World Cup spot on him. Maybe if it's 26, we're having a slightly different conversation instead of a 23-man roster, but even then, I, I don't think I would make that decision to bring Josie to Qatar.
1: Uh, since you said maybe if, it, if it's 26, I'm going to go a different way. What if it were 2017, Joe? Mm. <laughs> and it was the same. You're bringing 2017 Josie out the door uh, to this current U.S. team.
2: And Taylor, what you're getting at there? Because I don't, I don't know 2017 or 2018 or 2012, whatever. Yeah. But I, I think your your point in that question is: if this is a younger, fitter Josie Altidore, would he be involved in this U.S. team? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. I think yeah. you know a, a few years ago, so just generally speaking, yeah. I mean, technical technical quality, speed to get him behind, some physical attributes as well. I think he would be the starter for this team. I think he would have this job locked up. A, a past version of Josie Altidore. But this this current version is still a, a useful player in some ways for the Revs, but I I don't think he's got it in him.
1: Yeah, no no arguments for me. Worth remembering that when he was playing with Giovinco, I would always make that mistake of assuming, oh, it's Josie Altador who's kind of making the runs in behind, and it's Giovinco who's the conducting, other, yeah, uh, yeah, other way around. It was Josie Altador who did the hold up play and could kind of turn and, and spray those passes in, or obviously carry the ball forward and get some goals himself. And I think that is exactly what Greg Berhalter would want. But I I agree with you, Joe that for him to come back would require him to get back into really, really good shape to be able to contribute on the physical side. Uh, The technical side, I have fewer concerns about if he were kind of rounding into form. But there's also the emotional baggage. I I kind of already regret saying, what about 2017, Josie Altador, because I believe that's the last time we saw him for the United States uh, when they failed to qualify. And I think there is so much baggage. He still gets booed. He still gets a lot of uh, negativity around him because of that. And I wonder if he even would want to come back to the United States, if he wants to deal with that again. Maybe if he's kind of in the best form he could possibly be, it's a chance to sign off on a more positive note. But I think for Josie right now, it seems like he's happy just to kind of live his life and keep on going. Uh, But Graham, do you have any other things to say about Josie or Bobby Wood? I know you had like a whole like 10 minute uh, treatise (laughs) on Bobby Wood you wanted to roll out.
3: Yeah, I watched two hours of game tape on Bobby Wood for RSL this season. No, I'm kidding, I didn't. Uh, I did watch some old highlights of Jose, just to remind myself of how good he was. And I watched that England-USA game at the 2010 World Cup, where he has that, do you remember that turn and run that he has against England? He picks up the ball on the left side, he beats two, possibly even three men, and then he gets the shot away and it's pushed onto the post. It just kind of reminded me of the player that he was, and, and also the player that he... And this is always the thing with Josie Altidore, with injuries and the way his career panned out at certain clubs, but also the player he could have been. That's the, that's the the shame with Josie is I, I don't think we ever saw him fully fulfill his potential. But a, a great player in his day, nonetheless.
1: I remember the Confederations Cup game against Spain when the US won, that he was just torturing that Spanish defense, a Spanish defense that in 2010 would do just fine. So yeah. I, I think. I think uh, th- that stands out of my head as being the kind of peak, Josie. I doubt we get that again, but we should. It all was all
3: Sunderland's that. fault,
1: exactly. As are most things. It's Sunderland's fault. Final question from Tyler Cox: Is everything Sunderland's fault? Yes, we already answered that. But the second question: How much do individual clubs affect a player's injury record? After Giorgi's injury on Sunday. Uh, I can't help, but this was said a couple weeks ago. I can't help but look at other Dortmund players that have been constantly struggling with muscle injuries. Buckle Royce, Christian Pulisic, Dembele, Sancho, Holland. Uh, As a, a smattering from a couple years. Do you think it has much to do with the club's training or strength and conditioning programs, or is it the individual player? Joe, how say you?
2: I think it's the individual player. This is a really interesting mm. question, and I, I agree with Tyler. There is a theme at Dortmund, certainly with a lot of their high-profile attacking players, those guys are injured a lot. But I think there can be some extreme cases when a team's methods are, are so strange or, or hard on their players that players might become injury-prone, but I don't think that happens really at the highest levels of soccer. There's so much oh, I I- idea-sharing. Okay, well, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Graham, in just a second. I think there's so sure. much idea-sharing idea and crossover between top-level clubs. Marco Rosa, manager right now for Dortmund. He brought his methods from previous clubs with him to Dortmund, just like Lucien Favre and and Peter Bosch and Thomas Tuchel and Jurgen Klopp. All of those managers brought their ideas and and, and things to Dortmund, just like clubs and and teams do all across the world. A club's conditioning coach and and staff cannot stay. Some of those managers, the physios cannot stay, and that that is the case at Dortmund. But still, they're going to have all of the best bits of sports science knowledge and, and all of the best tools and resources to help their players stay fit. I think just some players have trouble staying fit. I would I would much more point to the individual over the team. Maybe there is an exception, and maybe Dortmund is that exception. But in general, I would be very surprised if there was some sort of really irresponsible training methodology happening happening at a gigantic club like Dortmund or Bayern Munich or any of the top clubs in the Premier League. Injuries are on the rise. A lot of that has to do with fixture congestion, and there have been studies that have shown that. But I don't know that I would point to a specific team as having really problematic
3: methods. Now, Graham, I've talked enough. I want to hear what you have to say. So I agree, Joe, when you say that you would lean towards the individual over the team. I think that is that is always the case. But I, I do believe that some clubs contribute to a player's injury record. And there's a good example of this recently, and it's Barcelona who have hired uh, a guy called Ivan Torres to be their new strength and conditioning coach. And when Xavi first came into that club, one of the first things he did was he got rid of the whole strength and conditioning department because he was unhappy with the number of injuries that were happening at Barcelona stretching back years and years. Um, and as I say, he, he got rid of them all. He brings in Torres and things have improved since then, although not in the case of Pedri, who is out uh, again at the moment. So it's not a, ironically, it's not an exact science, strength and conditioning. And also there are, it's not purely on the strength and conditioning coaches. I'd imagine the way that it meshes with the, the kind, the kind of coaching being done by the, the, the coaching staff on on the training pitch is a big factor. But I, th- I think when you um, add all those factors together, it certainly can aggravate a player's injuries. Ralph Raniak just th- this week was questioning how Manchester United can have so many players out injured right now when they're only competing in the Premier League, while Liverpool, who play Manchester United tonight at the time of recording, they are uh, fighting on four fronts and they have next to no Injuries, And his inference was that United are doing something wrong or approaching things in the wrong way. It could be down to overloading players too early in recovery. It could be down to rushing players back into ball work. I read an article that said that is a common thing, that coaches actually think ball work is... Uh, an easier way to ease players into their recovery rather than doing gym work but they fail to recognize the kind of explosive nature of ball work and that can aggravate an injury and i I read that same article from a couple years ago said that the best strength and conditioning coaches and experts are now getting paid huge amounts of uh, by uh, amounts of money by clubs who are desperate to find an advantage so i don't necessarily disagree with you joe i do think it's individual over team but i do believe teams uh, can be a factor as well in the way that they they conductor training and how their strength and conditioning department works
1: yeah i i would agree i think i'm somewhere in the middle but maybe leaning towards uh graham's perspective for a couple reasons first off we should note dortmund did sack their lead physio uh thomas zeltzman uh that was earlier this month i believe i think i think
2: that was for some sort of personal family reason for him but i could be wrong. yeah i
1: think part of it was that he was having like some family issues that maybe he wanted to step away. And so that's definitely part of it. But I think the article I read, at least, the Dortmund blog I was reading, was speculating on how many sort of soft tissue and muscle injuries there have been and maybe if those t- things coincide. And I think that, to me, is worth noting, Joe, not just because of like, oh, he was getting the training wrong, but I think there's probably something to be said for if you have a bunch of guys getting injured and they're young, they probably are looking for someone to blame. I could see how it could become a toxic situation really quickly. If you feel like it's the same hamstring, it's the same calf injury. Why does this keep happening? And if the person you can have, like, I think, um, I've heard a, a few different people, so it's not me saying this, talk about like how the Dutch don't have as much of the small talk politeness gene or background. And I could see a scenario in which a person is just giving you the straight science and not really making you feel better. And I could see players being kind of turned off by that or having issues with it. I think there could be personal things there. But I think the other example uh, from more recent history would be Jesse Marsh really recently talking about how he feels like the training methods of Marcelo Bielsa put Leeds in the position they're in presently. Uh, Marsh said, The injury issue had a lot to do with the training methodologies under Bielsa. Uh, these players were overtrained. It led to them being physically, mentally, psychologically, and emotionally in a difficult place to recover from week to week, from game to game. The stress levels were incredibly high. Uh, that's for Leeds, who have 31 injuries this season. That's twice as many as Wolves, three times as many as Crystal Palace. Tons of players missing time this season. And Marsha's point was that the way they trained the intensity of that training and the deliberately size or small size of the squad that Bielsa kept meant that you were going to get players burnt out really, really, really quickly. And so that's where I think it is probably somewhere in the middle of. If you have a team that is having a regular training session called Murder Ball, which Leeds were famously doing, I think that probably lends itself to Wearing wearing out and, and just sort of those kind of strains, the pulls. But I think also, as we saw with the all or nothing doc, when you have um, uh, a coach in Jose Mourinho who is prioritizing intensity and you've got to learn how to fight and you're all too soft, you get a ton of injuries in training because you're prioritizing training the way you play. And that means Eric Dyer crushing Son Hyung-min and him having to miss time because of it. So I think training and the approach to it can be a huge factor because ultimately, Joe... To emphasize your point uh, and the sort of information that's there, uh, Benoit Delavelle, who was the former head physio at Leeds, was talking about the structures they had in place. He said, we had programs based on the age of the player, their positions, their injury history. We worked on it every single day if a player had an ACL Uh, injury from the year before, he would have a specific plan. If a player had two hamstring injuries in the previous six months, there would be a specific plan. The player who had undergone surgery on his ankle would have a specific plan. Uh, He keeps going. We had programs depending on the player's needs. It was always a question of balance. And so maybe Jesse Marsh felt like that balance was not quite found, but I do think you've got a ton of science to back things up. And so sometimes maybe it's the training. Sometimes maybe it's a personality issue. Sometimes maybe it's the player or genetics or what have you but i think it can be a variety of factors and then i think as graham said you do have clubs that maybe have just better medical departments and better approaches to training and i think liverpool would be a prime example of that and now i have talked for a very long time
2: (laughs) anything else from either of you before we call this one answered i just hope we get this all sorted out because i only have so many body parts and hamstrings to give to people so
3: i i mean this we have to stop this (laughs) stop playing murder ball people (laughs) i was gonna say that joe how many hamstrings have you got because uh I th- the u.s MNT needs it for yeah, this yeah i'm doing the best i can here geo i mean i i need you to give do, do me one
2: solid dude come on now
1: joe the giving tree lowry that's what i've always <laughs> called him but when the u.s wins the world cup and joe is i think has like what one hamstring remaining and maybe one calf muscle maybe one ankle tendon joe it will be worth it i promise
3: Okay. Yeah. If for you me, say for so. me, it will. Be yeah, worth yeah, it. yeah. Not okay. so much for, you. for everyone for me, else. For you, sure, it will for definitely you, yeah. be worth it. Yeah. Uh, Do Graham you get man. the hamstring back once he's used it? Like, does your hamstring return from Qatar with a medal? I'll admit,
2: I uh, didn't include anything about returning the hamstring Yo. to me in the contract. <laughs> that was probably an oversight. I'm gonna. I I gotta
3: go make a call, guys. <laughs>
1: Joe, we gotta get you some better contract lawyers, man. We could we could have worked this thing out. We could have got you some medals. Yeah,
3: we need you a loan coach.
1: We could have at least (laughs) (laughs) there we go. (laughs) Graham's joke was better than mine was gonna be. So we'll end on that note. Graham Ruffin, thank you for that joke and for all the information and insight you've provided today.
3: Thank you, Taylor Rockwell
1: Joe Lowry, thank you for all the information, insight and body parts that you've provided today.
3: Thank you, Taylor Rockwell,
1: <laughs> and listeners. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back uh, tomorrow, or I will be back talking to Lori Lindsay about the U.S. Women's National Team Thursday. We've got listener questions. Friday, there's allocation disorder. There's a soccer 101 in there as well. Tons of constant content, to- content whew, still to come. But for now, that ending tells me it's time to call it a day. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you very soon.